everyone has some sort of a closet that has become too small. A closet is no place to live, and I want to support as many people as I can in stepping out of that prison into the fullness of life that is waiting for them on the other side of that door. This is Nancy Shadlock from Centered Life Coaching. Join me in listening to these coming out chronicles. Get curious about their stories and then go see what good things are waiting for you on the other side of your closet door. I'm joined today by James Demers. James was the first trans person that I really got to hear from really vulnerably and honestly. Uh, James was doing a presentation at a local church uh, shortly around the same time that I was coming out. And James did such a great job of just being there and letting people ask all kinds of questions and was really transparent about what the process of transitioning from female to male was like. And I was just amazed at how open he was and how honest he was. And I learned that trans people have the highest instance of bladder infections because often they're scared to go and use bathrooms. It broke my heart. Um, and I've since seen James in all kinds of different situations because James is like a staple in Calgary in the queer scene. James is the executive director of Calgary Queer Art Society. He's a delighted drag dad, a trans activist, and a community development enthusiast. When by some miracle he's not working, he spends time with his two rescue rabbits and his chosen family. I'm so delighted to have him on the show today. I'm so happy to have you on here, James. It's so wonderful to hear your story, and I'm excited to hear what comes up for you. Yeah, it should be interesting. Give us uh, the context for the coming out story that you'd like to share with us today. I'm sure you've had many coming outs, but what is the one that you would like to share today with us? You know what? Uh, the the second time that I came out to my grandfather is actually one of my favorite uh, coming out stories. So uh, I've come out twice. I came out at like between, if I say between 12 and 15, because it was sort of like lots of different people over that time, but I came out between 12 and 15 uh, as a, a lesbian. And then at 19, I started transitioning. Um, and my grandparents are... Uh, my grandfather was the chairman of the Roman Catholic school board in Lethbridge for 25 years. Wow. Uh, also raised three girls. Um, and my grandmother was uh, staunchly feminist in a way that most people in small town Lethbridge are not. My grandparents are also probably only, only liberal lawn sign <laughs> in that town. Uh, so they're, you know, I was sort of, I was set up for success, but when I came out to them initially, um, at 15, when I was first on my own, they were lovely and completely unexpectedly so, um, and supportive and they had their moments and they, you know, like they really did a stellar job and there was not as much support then as there was now. And, uh, but the second time that I came out to them when I told them I was going to transition, I, I sort of like sat them down and we had, and had done the thing when I said like, I'm going to transition and I'm changing my name and on and on. And, um, my grandfather put his left hand on the table and said, I'm left-handed and the church wasn't right about that either. That's fine. What's your new name? And that was it. 
it was this moment where you have this man who's the youngest of 14 children um, who was who had a blended family because of deaths through World War One and, and uh, or sorry, through World War Two, who grew up in an incredibly conservative part of Alberta through all of these things. And the thing that connects to him is just because he was left handed and culturally at the time that was a sign of the devil. He's never been able to write properly. Um, and so it's especially poignant now because I've, since we've, I've lost, we've lost my grandmother. And so she sort of balanced out his, like he can't, can't really write, right? Like physically write. And she used to do it for him. And so there's been this, this shift in the understanding of that importance, but it was really interesting where it was just so clear to him how simple this was. Mm. And I thought that was a really, <laughs> it's always been one of those moments I will never forget it um, because it's such a simple thing that he would have been entirely set up theoretically, right? In the way that we normally think about stories like this, he would have been set up for that to have gone very differently for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you're treated differently, if you can hold on to the learning, like the core of that, then sometimes it pays off. And this was one of those circumstances where it paid off for me. He really had empathy for you from his own situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so he came to pride, what, two years ago, I think it was the first time Pride in Lethbridge, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, and it was so interesting because it wasn't, he knew that I was involved with drag troops and what my work was. And I'm up front and he's met all of my partners. Like all of that is a part of our relationship. Um, but watching him experience Pride in his small town for the first time was actually really spectacular uh, because I think it just melted away any of the fear that came with the perceptions of what that kind of celebration can necessarily look like. And the reality in small towns is it looks like the community that creates it. And so, right, it's this, it actually is this very, um, everybody gets what they want out of it, accessible opportunity. And so um, it's just interesting. I think it's perception, right? Yeah. I don't know if you know this, but I actually graduated in Lethbridge. Oh, that makes yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that, I still go back there pretty often, actually. I mean, I did yeah. summer camps at the at the university and all that stuff. So, yeah. yeah, but I, I there was a a show recently at the Galt Museum about mm -hmm. queer stuff. There was a call for submissions, and so we've we've had our birth story written up before, and so I thought about sending it, and then I got really anxious with the thought mm -hmm. of sending it because I was like what if people I know go and see it and like that you're right like Lethbridge is a very conservative place and I haven't really gone back or connected much with my ties there because mm -hmm. I was in quite a conservative church at the time and a lot of them still are and so I'm just like oh it's scary to think about coming out there even though I'm out on Facebook and I'm friends with lots of them so it's it's just a weird yeah and it's changed like I really Pride, I think Lethbridge has had a pride now for, I want to say at least 11 or 12 years, mm -hmm. which is significant. They've really like turned that corner. And, and I think the city, the city was written up, Lethbridge as a city was actually written up in a CBC article. It was about this time last year. And the article was talking about how small towns that border on uh, states with the United States, so those kind of border crossing places, can often be kind of hotbeds for the development of things like white supremacist ideology, particularly in conservative places. But Lethbridge 
So they used Lethbridge as a case study because they just assumed that's how it worked there. And it turns out that Lethbridge's social services are so are in such frequent communication with each other that they actually uh, they actually de-escalate instances of the development of pockets of white supremacist ideology because everyone in the social service sector speaks to each other because it's such a small <laughs> network. Um, but when there's a flag, everyone knows right away. And so they actually found it that the, the size of the city and the way that it was connected made it an idea example of how to sort of deconstruct the assumptions about that in small space which i was pleasantly surprised by yeah, yeah that's amazing yeah I, I do love that about the size of lethbridge that you can just go around anywhere and see someone you know <laughs> yeah, pretty much yeah that's true so so in other aspects of coming out at 19 what was it was it all received well did you have some challenges at some points um, a combination of things. So uh, I had been on my own since I was 15. I had a really phenomenal, well-connected queer community. I'd been connected to the community through fake mustache, through drag. I signed up for my first drag show 24 hours after <laughs> getting kicked out of my parents' place. And that's the rest is pretty much history at this point. Um, but I, when I when I started transitioning, I lost my construction job. I lost my construction apprenticeship and there was no federal employment protection. That has only happened recently. This was 14 years ago. Um, and so that was that was definitely an impact. The ironic thing being, I ended up working at Money Pennies, which was a lesbian pub here, which was a great time uh, and absolutely an interesting place to like start my transition and make chicken wings. Strange. So there was, you know, there was serendipitous, like, you know, it wasn't a ton of it wasn't a ton of money, but it was a ton of connection and it was a way to reconnect with the community and recenter. And that eventually led to a couple of other short term positions that led to fairy tales. So if I hadn't lost that job, I would probably still be swinging a hammer. There'd be no reason not to. Right. Perfectly reasonable. Um, but this it pushed me to do something different. And for better or for worse, here we are. I kept all those skills. Like when I bought my house, I built my fence. <laughs> so it's uh, I don't miss out on it. But that nice. was interesting. Um, but by and large, because I was working in queer community and like I was both the male and female co-chair of pride in the same year legally once. So like I was already doing community outreach stuff. Um, then it was actually pretty easy to stay connected. And, and that helped a lot because the, the community around me was affirming and we knew that the world wasn't necessarily a safe place. And so there was a lack of surprise, um, but lots of opportunity. And that was kind of how I started doing my work. So, can I back you up for a second? Did, yeah. did you say that you were kicked out of your house? Yes. Yeah, I was. I was on my own at fifteen. Uh, I stayed with friends and put myself through high school and did pretty well, actually. Um, I started doing construction through the ramp program in eleventh grade, so I worked. I went to school half the year and I worked half the year, and I managed to make it all work. But. Uh, yeah, the my, my breakup with my parents was the best decision I've ever made. <laughs> Besides transitioning, I think those are the two most significant. Wow. Um, because it was absolutely the right time, even though I look back at how young I was then. Um, I have feelings about it now, but at the time, I, I couldn't have told me any different. And was it because you came out as a lesbian? I had been out for a couple of years to my parents, but that situation was just not good. And it wasn't getting better, and that didn't make it better. Um, and uh, yeah, my parents were very much beholden to a generation for whom uh, having a queer kid was not a social ladder climbing opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and uh, and that's a complex, that's its own sort of like complicated pile of things. But the interesting thing that uh, is that I always knew there was nothing wrong with me. So as far as I was concerned, it was their problem. Uh, and I mean, I feel the same way today that I did then. Uh, and they know where I am. I'm essentially live publicly. Not a, <laughs> so if, uh, if uh, but they uh, kicked me out and moved to Vancouver, ironically. And uh, I stayed here and started doing the work. So worked out. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not hard. Are you connected that. now at all? No, I, funnily enough, I'm not connected to my parents at all, but the whole rest of my extended family, um, which is mostly Roman Catholic and Mormon, uh, phenomenal. I have great connections with them. And, um, and so that's part of the reason that me and my grandfather are so close and part of the reason that um, we do. Yeah. So that's the rest of my family is really connected. There's additional stuff with my parents. My mother's not in a great relationship, which is the biggest sort of hurdle there. Um, and, uh, and that's just is what it is, right? But we make our choices. So they certainly know where I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I got to have a completely different relationship with the rest of my extended family because of it, right? It just completely changed our lines of communication and the way that we um, talk to each other. All of those things changed. So. How come? Because I sort of ended up being... Uh, I sort of ended up taking my mother as the oldest of the three daughters. And so I sort of ended up taking on the responsibility as the only sort of like grandkid of that family to manage things like logistical things when somebody dies or like healthcare concerns or like I very, very quickly became at the need to know level of adulthood in my family in a different way. And so that changed the dynamic, right? But it meant that my, my family was also more honest <laughs> with me in the way that you are when you're suddenly like, oh, I guess like we are the adults now, huh? <laughs> kind of thing and like and I'm the oldest of nine grandkids so my cousins were growing up and having kids and that came with its own stuff and it's the usual it's a very big family <laughs> and they live all over the place so uh, a lot of them are in Lethbridge now but there's quite a few of us and is it, are your parents connected to the rest of them no that's my family sided with me wow wild hey it's yeah. so unbelievably dramatic just not it's just so extra. <laughs> it's just like unnecessary. <laughs> One gay kid. Here we are. <laughs> and like we have other gay family members. Like this is this is the thing about my parents. Is so my grandfather's the youngest of fourteen. The middle daughter. Uh, Dolores, who is actually one of the women who started in from the cold in Calgary, fascinatingly enough, she's lovely. She had seven children. Uh, the seventh of them, my uncle Brian, is the head of gynecology at Vancouver General. His husband, Michael, is a pediatrician. They have both ends covered. It's their ongoing tagline. Um, but like, so I have a gay uncle who runs a gynecology department in Vancouver. I have like, there's a couple of, there's a Shelly, who's my, who's an RCMP officer and her partner. Like there are queer people in my family. They were just a little outside of my, under, of my, like, childhood age understanding of connecting with that right i was definitely the first queer person in my family so just like bring my partner to christmas no exceptions didn't ask permission but what that did is i have older gay uncles who now like talk about their partners when they come to things like christmas and stuff like that or like right so there was it's sort of like there was like a pass the baton thing like their existence in my family and their willingness to live openly in the context of our family collectively before me meant that when i came out i could push that a little bit and that mm -hmm. opened up doors for them like it's it, it's kind of cool yeah. um so like my uncle wayne and i chat every once in a while he's part of a um he has a, a kind of like a family right a queer family down in uh, niagara falls and so yeah 
And he got the heck out of Claire's home in like 1983, as you can imagine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when we get to connect again, it's great, but it's uh, it just changed things, right? And, and now we're getting to that age where there's a second generation of kids coming. My grandparents are getting older. We just lost my grandmother. Like it's things are shifting, right? The places we hold celebrations are changing. So, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like you, have, you had a mixed bag of some really supportive people in your life and some not at all. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but in, but in the extremes, the, my, my queer family, like fake mustache and my friends and, um, and the support I have here. And then my extended family who I'm still connected to are fantastic and stellar all around. So I don't, chosen family is powerful and I don't think it matters if you, uh, if you, how you were introduced to who you choose to eventually become your actual family. Like that's, that shifts. Mm-hmm. When you think back to that 19-year-old self, what supports do you wish that that person had? Hmm. You know, I was so lucky. Uh, like, I had access. I knew what doctors to talk to immediately because I was part of the community already. And I had I, like a, friend, a good friend of mine. We went to Girl Guys together, and then we both transitioned since because, of course, um, he had been transitioning for about a year, a year and a half before me. So I had access to that. What, what the conversation that was happening or in the community when I transitioned that was that doesn't happen in the way that it does now is there was almost no visible crossover between sort of like queer women's communities and trans identified communities of any kind. So like we were having conversations back then about um, about like people who cho- choose to who chose to transition, like I was transitioning, sort of like giving up all of these all of this access and all this opportunity, or like access to a community that had supported me to that point, right? Like like queer women communities is what I grew up in and where I started my activism, and there was this sense of like the door closing, right? There was this sort of understanding that. I was making a choice, making a choice. This is, here's the language, right? But at the time, making, making this choice and there was, and there are elements of things that would no longer be accessible to me. And like, how would I rebuild those parts of community that I was making, right? That I like out of respect in a lot of ways aren't places that I necessarily would have a right to always access again. And what's the support system there? Um, We have that conversation very differently now than when I came out. Um, which is great. And some of that is because we just, many of us transitioned and didn't go away, which is what used to happen in the 70s and 80s and 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Lots of trans people were encouraged to leave and move to other cities and completely start their lives over again. And so that doesn't give you the opportunity to see someone developing community through their entire process. And now there's many of us that have. And so I think that has made the difference, right? It's, it's harder to ostracize someone if they don't ever go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and in, by and large, when I experienced that, it was few and far between. I mean, I was hanging out with drag kings, for goodness sakes. I'd self-selected probably the best cluster of humans to be like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but even then, right? And I found, I found I had stronger reactions from people who I'd had intimate relationships with because it made them question their own sort of like the connection. Um, but I mean, in 15 years, the way we talk about gender has changed remarkably. Um, and that's great. It's been really exciting. I'm all for it. Uh, I just happen to look as masculine as I do all the time out of default. But I think I think gender itself is far more interesting than that. And it's and watching the community embrace uh, trans identity in significant ways um, has been really exciting because it just that just wasn't the way it worked 
when I started, right? And there were people before me who spent 10 or 15 years of their transition before they got even close to the representation we have now. So. I was talking to someone recently about how hard it is in a marriage to let the other person grow and change and Mm -hmm. stay, maintain a good connection through that. And so it's interesting to hear you say that, yeah, you did it different than they used to say of like, you're transitioning, you need to go and start it fresh somewhere else. But to, to do all of that transitioning right here with your same people and, and they supported you in that and, and loved you, loved the core of who you were, who you are through that all. It's so beautiful. And I knew, I think some of it was when you have, uh, and I've seen this watching other trans people transition. It's, it's hard to watch it yourself because you, you know, you've got feelings about your own feelings. But when you're watching, watching someone transition is sometimes kind of like just watching them emerge. Like there have always been there. It's not as if they're not the same person, but it's like they wake up in a different way or they take up space in their own bodies in a different way. And that presents all kinds of other opportunities. And that is delightful. I see it in performers too. It's different, but when a, when a performer, when something clicks, when somebody is able to to deliver the narrative that they're experiencing in a live performance in that way, and it clicks with an audience and you're suddenly all in that moment, that's kind of what, stepping out of dysphoria feels like where everything just lines up and it's just simple for a second. Right. And then that becomes longer over time. Um, and then you stop thinking about it as much like that. Those are the, right. That's the progressive. It's sort of like breaking up in reverse. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like every day it's a little easier and there are moments and there are setbacks and there are whatever, but yeah. Can you explain dysphoria to us? Some some listeners may not even know what that word means. Totally. So dysphoria um, specifically just just means a, like a fear of or a rejection of. So this, this can be applied to a variety of different things. So like body dysphoria is rapid, is common in the population. The vast majority of us have some form of body dysphoria, uh, largely because that's how we're sold to. <laughs> there's actually nothing wrong with most of the products that we buy for our bodies most of the time um but then so gender dysphoria is sort of a specific focus where the dysphoria around the discomfort you feel or the disconnection you feel with the way your body presents and the way you know that yourself yourself to be internally which is specifically your gender identity so software hardware is kind of the way it goes when those two things are out of flux they don't they don't work very well and so there's this pervasive sense of being detached or removed from or attacked by uh, a body that doesn't feel authentic to the way that you know yourself to be and so mending that relationship is a really complex kind of back and forth and so things can create dysphoria or trigger dysphoria unexpectedly because as we move through the world we move through a series of gendered sort of like gates and expectations and coming up against those can either be a positive thing like an affirming thing which is gender euphoria to the opposite um, or they can conflict with who you know yourself to be and who the world accepts you to be sort of in an external way and that can create a dysphoric episode so dysphoria is a a state of being, but it can also be something that can be visited upon you. It can happen in different ways. Hmm. It's kind of like the, your, the, if you were, if you were a car, the car is capable of driving 180 kilometers, but it just doesn't have the engine it needs to do that. <laughs> hmm. So you just you can you can move that. But I don't know. I I um I got into uh, I became a personal trainer 
uh, about 10 years after I started transitioning, because one of the most powerful ways that I reconciled with the dysphoria and the trauma and the long and complicated sort of like existing as a patient in a medical process for anyone, um, but especially especially it can be for trans folks, sort of like in that patient process can be pretty exhausting. So by the time I was through my medical medical process, I was pretty done um, for a while. But uh, what I hadn't done is I hadn't rebuilt my relationship with my body at all. I had just changed my body. And that wasn't the same as having a relationship with my body. And so I had to completely rebuild what that meant. And I did that through physicality. I did that through just rediscovering what the boundaries of my body were and but approaching those boundaries in a way that was healthier than I had before so approaching those boundaries in a way that was gentler and kinder and where I thought about my joints more and I stretched more and I did you know what I mean? so I started developing a healthy relationship as a way to spend an hour with my body every day where we could accomplish something together and that's what changed my relationship with my body transitioning was necessary it was the necessary medical mechanic for me that gave control to the, the, the dysphoria that otherwise would have controlled my life. But having a relationship with my body was something I chose to build after the fact. So it was sort of like I got a good set of blueprints, but there was a lot of stuff that needed to go up for <laughs> to make yeah. that work um, because my body was unrecognizable to me. Once I, once I'd had chest surgery and my hysterectomy, I'd lost a lot of weight. Things had changed rapidly over the last couple of years. Um, and it was time to rebuild it. Uh, and I don't, and I think because Lots of trans folks spend so much time waiting to get surgeries to see to see um, successful results through this kind of intervention. We don't actually get the chance to talk about what we do after. And I think what we do after for the rest of our lives, like how we have that relationship for the rest of time and how we recover, because recovery, even if it's trauma you signed up for, it's trauma uh, and recovering from that is complex. Um, and we spend very little time talking about the rest of our lives. Right. There's sort of a lot in the beginning and very little as to like, well, what, what does this mean in long run? So, yeah, that's so beautiful to hear how you you had the, the body, the shell of it, but to learn to love it because, yeah, yeah, like there's tons of people with eating disorders or they yeah. look at themselves in the mirror and they're just like, no, I don't like what I see. But you you consciously made that relationship whole and it's so yeah. beautiful to see it. it it comes forth in the way that you present yourself now, like the way that I see you, you are a beautiful person and you exude that, like you exude confidence, you exude strength and at homeness in who you are. Oh, thank you. It's, and it's, I, I call it a relationship only because I have to do it all the time. This is like, right. It isn't sort of like, I never, I don't ever expect to arrive at a place where I just can take for granted this relationship for a variety of reasons, right? I'm going to age, things are going to change. We're, we're dealing with this pandemic and all this, right? Like my, my relationship with my body is something that if it's not conscious then the unconsciousness of it creates its own problems. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but like making, it's like making, I make time for it because it makes the rest of my life successful. I think that's the same story for everyone. Like no matter what body we have, we have to have a relationship with it and invest in it and learn how to love it because I'd say probably most of us don't automatically just do that. Probably, yeah, because you're, you're right, how, how we're sold. Yeah. And it's a shame because body's cool. And we, it's like we have this very narrow idea of what a good body is, which is totally absurd. Like bodies can do some crazy things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this wonderful photo that I share with clients all the time. And it's 
an entire run. It's all female Olympic athletes from all uh, categories. And they're in sort of like shorts and sports bra combinations. But what you're actually seeing is 45 different body types. They're all Olympic athletes. They're all elite athletes. But the bodies that are, the body diversity that's represented within the skill level is what matters, right? So, so when you look at 45 different, completely different types of bodies, and you're like, these are all Olympic athletes. These are all Olympians. The body, then we can have a conversation about body diversity. Like men were to the right, because there's just no, we rank people based on what visual assumption, which means absolutely nothing, <laughs> right? Like I'm, I mean, I'm five, seven, and I, I can easily lift 400 pounds. I don't look like that on the outside. And like, there are lots and lots of people in my weight category who I wouldn't look twice at in the supermarket who could lift five times me. There's no, you know, it's about physics and training. And like, that's totally different than speed skaters. And that's completely different than somebody who's a, ball, who's a ballet dancer. And I can't, I would not survive a ballet rehearsal. There's no way. <laughs> I can, the first Zumba class I took taught me to never have an ego that fitness ever in my entire life. So... Yeah, Zumba is not easy. Yeah, my mom is a fitness instructor, so I, if anything made me gay, <laughs> the the dubbing '90s fitness workout tapes continuously in my house from you know zero to six probably did at least part of it. So, yeah. So you mentioned clients. Tell us about your work and what you're doing in the world. Yeah, so I do sliding scale um, personal training. So I do. Um, I do some uh, sort of like eating disorder recovery and dysphoria stuff, pre and post-surgical work, but also just um, I've worked with people who are recovering from car accidents. It's a, it's a bit of a mix. But the way that I do personal training is I'm just there to facilitate this day with your, you and your body. That's it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just there to move you through it. And so the goal of it always is to, um, to just create an opportunity for you to move in space with your body in ways that are new or interesting. And then we can attach goals to it based on the person. Um, but it's highly flexible and it's a lot of fun. I think it's really interesting to, to give people permission to just play, which is so much of what it is, right. And do that in a way that's safe and, and figure out where, when they move their body in certain ways, knowing that they're moving in safe ways, they're not worried about picking up something at the grocery store and right. Like common injuries like that are usually just very simple things that you can make modifications in. And as you start to feel more confident, you take chances and then you watch people sort of like push that envelope. It's great. It's a lot of fun. So it's like some of my clients, some of my clients want to be able to just like play with their kids all afternoon without getting winded. There's tons of ways we can do that, right? There's all kinds of ways to integrate it. Some of my clients want to build relationships with their partners. And so we do partner workouts where they rely on each other for balance to make these things happen, right? And there's Mm -hmm. like a trust part of that. Um, Some of my clients just want me to count out loud for them so they don't have to and make them do a thing because I'm their accountability measure and that's the purpose that I serve and to keep and I make sure they're safe and here we are, right? So it's all very, very different. Um, but I love working with people in that place. I feel honored to be able to work with people while they're parsing through those conversations internally uh, and give them permission to just like have a bad day and not get, and get through half of it and need to just sit and talk for the rest of it. That's fine, right? Like that's just as much relationship building as anything is. So, and I find a lot of the fitness industry is just this like punish your body idea. And I I just don't get that. Like you only have one. (laughs) I say this is someone who's done the whole, you know, so (laughs) you only have one. And and also like, do you want elbows at 60? Like, what are you, does that, is that burpee really? Like, do you really need 
to do 10 more of those right now? Is that going to, is that okay? Like it, it being so sore and so sort of, and I love, like I run Spartan races. I'm all for, you know, let's do some crazy stuff in mud here and there, but I choose to do that, right? It shouldn't be my only choice. It shouldn't be the only way that we interact with our bodies is through some kind of like disciplined force necessarily because as kids we don't even we don't think we watch kids run around and we think like oh that's great exercise but when we're kids we're not thinking like let's get some exercise that's not we're so much more locked into this creative the creative potential of connecting with others which is what exercise can be potentially if we let it if we let it maybe i'm biased though i played a lot of girls sports uh so i have a bias towards team systems so there's that (laughs) This episode of The Coming Out Chronicles was brought to you by Centered Life Coaching. We help you know yourself, to free yourself, and be yourself, so you can live the fullest expression of who you really are. Stay tuned, there's more to come in this episode. What is your next coming out story? Mm. I think the next coming out in my life will be, um, that's a good question. I want to say like a, maybe a career shift to be totally honest. I think I'm, I think there's, uh, I see lots of opportunities to do good in public service and the skill set that I've built might do well there. Uh, and I think this we're living in interesting times <laughs> and maybe it's time to have different representation in the world than what we're relying on at the moment, not in all places, but in a lot of places. Um, and so there's, there's that, but also, and so I don't know, I'm kind of, I think I'm trying to figure out what I want to, what I want to pour my energy into long-term and I love the work that I do, but I want to make sure that there's lots of opportunities for that to be passed on when it needs to be too, which is that weird balance. So we'll see. But I've considered running for politics. I'm actually fairly serious about it so far. Hmm. Um, so, but I mean, that's a long-term plan. So we'll see. Yeah. What scares you about that? Uh, privacy, primarily. Uh, the work, I'm thrilled by. I think it'd be great. And I think that it would be, uh, I think it would be powerful to run as an openly trans candidate in any context. Um, I think it would be especially fun to run for federal politics, <laughs> partially because of the way that I look. So I'm like, okay, well, let's, uh, let's scare some people. But uh, yeah, I think there's... Listening, I, explain that. Like, what do you mean mm-hmm. by the way that you look? Because, because I, well, because I've transitioned for, for quite a while, but because I, I come off as and look and are very comfortable in um, my masculinity, often I've been put in lots of situations, particularly in the last five or six years in the context of work, um, where lots of people have no idea that I'm trans identified. And so that has led to some very funny situations. Uh, but because I, it's because I'm privileged to work in a queer organization, maybe even before the legislation changed, I've had the security to sort of be able to manage those, right? And to not, not be concerned that that was going to affect my work. Um, but I think, I think there's a perception among people who are not connected to the LGBT community that we all look a particular way or are suddenly identifiable. And there is no greater learning device than having someone spout off about something that they know nothing about. And then usually in the case of trans politics, I just reintroduce myself again and then let them start again 
And then we do it again. And it is this humanizing thing where I'm like, you should know who's like, we are part of your world. And by making us part of your world in ways where I am in a place to be able to identify in that way. I've never loved yelling at people, let's put it that way. But if somebody's going to make an ass of themselves, I'll let them finish. But I don't think blowing up at them does anything. Uh, reintroducing myself with appropriate context is does everything I could ever need it to. And then maybe there's an opportunity for us to have a conversation about perception. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, personal story is the biggest thing that changes people, isn't it? Totally. And with all of the provincial health work that I've done, with a lot of the advocacy that I've done, even teaching in oil companies, right? Like I'm a diversity educator professionally, and I spend a lot of time in uh, in really interesting boardrooms. And and you can tell when there's this sort of like power of perception shifts for them, right? Because if I can just get an HR manager to not make assumptions about people's gender by habit, Yahtzee, <laughs> great for all of us, right? But that takes having someone um, having a memorable moment or having someone having that shift for them in a moment that they remember permanently. Uh, and sometimes a shock and awe is worth it. <laughs> so why not? I mean, really, it's, as opposed to Hollywood just sensationalizing trans people, at least let me use it as an opportunity for me. <laughs> so here we are. What would you most want to contribute as someone in politics? I would like to return a sense of uh, of servitude to the idea of what public office I think should be, to be honest. Uh, That's a grand idea. I mean, I'd like to do a good job and I would like to represent my constituents well fundamentally. Um, But I think that there's this idea that politicians are immune to what is essentially, as far as I'm concerned, a public service job, right? You were a a conduit for the will of a larger society. And what, what I think is, um, is so complicated is we have politicians that are running on ideological platforms that are theoretical, but there, there's a praxis issue where that's not meeting with your average person, right? The reason that people are feeling hurt is because no one is speaking their language, right, in a lot of cases. And so I think if there was a way to return this idea of you run for office to support to support doing work in a service position, and so it should be considered that way. And so there's things like, I think politicians are significantly overpaid. I think politicians are, are significantly sort of like under, uh, not under-resourced, but they're not sort of given the opportunity to get in depth to actual issues because they spend so much time campaigning that it's difficult to actually move through those bits and pieces. So I would love to see the opportunity to refocus what it means to work for a public good. Hmm. I, think that, I think that Alberta is a really good place to make that argument. Because I think there's actually, I think that's actually something we fundamentally excel at. When things go wrong, a group of Albertans is usually a pretty efficient way to get it handled, (laughs) especially when it comes to a disaster. So I just think there's something about the self-determinism of kind of like, we are actually all responsible for each other. And that includes and should include at the the highest order of accountability, people in positions of power. Yeah. And we're all one, we're all the same underneath everything. I mean, everybody's got grandparents that are going to be affected by this pandemic and everybody has a relative living in rural Alberta that might not have a doctor right now. Like we, this is not, it's not hard to reach. You don't have to reach far to find somebody who's affected by the way things are being organized right now. Mm-hmm. What kind of support do you need in that next chapter? Well, I mean, if the UPC keeps operating the way that they are, it might be far easier than I was expecting it to be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, at this point, 
I th- the, the single most important thing is the community through this uh, needs to find ways to stay connected and stay um, and stay connected in ways that keep accountability where it needs to be. We're all working in a really weird context right now, but it's important to be sort of self-aware of as we sort of reach out in allyship by isolating. That's essentially what we're doing, right? We're sort of doing everybody a solid by not, <laughs> by not seeing other people. And that's great, but we desperately need to connect because there's still, there's still organizing and fundraising and support for organizations and programming that's going to be starting to roll out in other ways. And if we can continue to support digitally in ways that we had done in person, uh, the people that receive that support absolutely still need it. So while we're all kind of isolated, things like finding ways to support LGBT youth who are in unsupportive homes where they can't leave them right now, like that's a real thing. Uh, Seniors, especially LGBT seniors in in low-income housing are having all kinds of challenges and isolation and and the danger of this potential pandemic is higher for them. So if there are ways to support things like the Kirby Center and the work that's happening there, they still need that support. And it's easier to forget about it when we're not going out every day and sort of seeing the reminders that are present in the world, like advertising and events and things like that. Um, but they're still there. They still need your help. So that would be the thing. And I think if we can stay connected, then the payoff is going to be phenomenal. And I think there's going to be a whole new audience that's connected to organizations and creators through a digital format by necessity of this, that we might see whole new audiences going out to arts events and community events and doing fundraisers and volunteering. So I feel like this is a chance to build an audience. Uh, And maybe it's a chance for us to admit that there's an accessibility issue where maybe we should always have a global connection to an audience. Maybe we should always have this option for folks. Uh, and how would we integrate that? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, James. It was so wonderful to have you here. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. And good luck with the podcast. As as uh, as you bring episodes out, let us know. We'll be happy to share it because um, we've got the Quarantine Corner up and we've got all kinds of stuff coming up at the festival. So be all for it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Coming Out Chronicles. If you enjoyed it and you think it would be helpful for someone else, please share it with them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on social. I'd love to support you in the next chapter of your coming out story. I can help you know yourself, free yourself, and be yourself. Until next time, this is Nancy Shadlock from Centered Life Coaching.